Hey Jim, this is Louie down at the fish market. You gonna pick up these halibut or what? Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And I'm Emily Carabas. That's right. For this episode, we have a very special guest. Emily, why, oh why, did you decide to join us here to talk about The Rockford Files? Uh, well, first off, James Garner is a national treasure. <laughs> we were lucky to yes. have him. Uh, I love the show, too. Uh, I've watched many an episode with Epi and uh, just really, really admire the writing that went into the show, the thoughtfulness, um, some amazing issues they tackled. And it was kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Um, and it's mm-hmm. a real classic that I'm glad to be able to look at in depth with you guys. Awesome. Yeah, you're you're a bit of a ringer because we happen to know that you uh, are also a very accomplished uh, narrative designer yourself. And so appreciate a lot of the same things that we appreciate about the show. Do you mind telling us and our listeners a little bit about your, your work? Thank you very much. Uh, I also write and publish role-playing games, tabletop, analog, you know, paper and pencil things like uh, you both do. And um, I wrote the Romance Trilogy, which has three of my early games, Breaking the Ice, Shooting the Moon, and Under My Skin, which have, surprise, a romance theme. <laughs> um, my games are focused on finding the heart of characters, seeing what matters to them, and then putting them in a juicy situation. And that's really what Rockford does amazingly well. So, Yeah, totally. We're uh, glad to have you on board for this episode. Thanks for having me. Emily is a, a silent contributor to most episodes, too, because... <laughs> I happen to be married to Emily, and uh, we often talk about the Rockford Files here at home or while in the car being chased by gorillas. <laughs> I'm working on my Rockford turn. Yeah. <laughs> We're only able to have guests because of the uh, support and generosity of our Patreon supporters. We will develop our guest program as we go um, throughout the next year, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Try and, and get a, a diversity of guests, but... um. I think we're starting off strong with uh, with Emily. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters. I'm so happy to be here and, and be here with you too. Thank you, folks. So, uh, so Epi, yeah, what episode are we bringing Emily on board to talk talk with us about this time? Right. So uh, the episode is from the near the very beginning of season one. This is the earliest episode we've done, I believe, called "The Dark and Bloody Ground." IMDb is saying it's episode two. So we're going to, you know, we go with the IMDb convention, I think, just for ease of linking and yeah. access and stuff. So by that, it's season one, episode two. But if you were watching, if you, you know, were excited to see this new James Garner vehicle, this would be the fourth episode because there'd be the two, the two-parter pilot and then the first episode and then this. And then to add another boring and confusing layer, uh, <laughs> if you're on the uh, 200 a day Rockford Files files, mm-hmm. uh, I believe it's episode three because we treat episode one as one episode. Right. So there you go. That is the least exciting part of our show. This is the earliest one that we've talked about. And I think we'll, we see that a little bit in some of the characterization of some of our recurring characters. They haven't really settled in as much yeah. as in later seasons. And also just little things like uh, this was the first location for uh, Jim's trailer where later it went to the beach. But right now it's in this like parking lot. There's some interesting shots of the inside of the trailer in this episode, too, that don't uh, that you don't see that often. Yeah, so this episode was written uh, by Roy Huggins, uh, 
series co-creator and under his his pen name almost all of the first season episodes uh, are attributed to john thomas james which was roy huggins nom de plume for uh when he wrote his own script the teleplay credit goes to juanita bartlett who would go on to have more and more of a free creative hand in the show mm-hmm. as time went on and the director is michael schultz i saw the name and it rang a vague bell and then when i looked him up uh, this was near the beginning of his directorial career, but through the uh, 70s and 80s, he had a bunch of, uh, I guess, historically important films that he directed. He's one of the great pre-Spike Lee black directors. Mm. So he directed Cooley High and Crush Groove, awesome. which oh. I don't know if listeners are familiar, but those are kind of iconic uh, black led films uh, of the era. Um, he also directed The Last Dragon. Ooh. Yeah is a martial arts film. Anyway, great director. Uh, and then he kind of went back into TV and he's still working today. Mm. Interesting guy. And I just wanted to note the caliber of, of his uh, talent. And cause I think we see a very cinematic look at a lot of the, yeah. a lot of the scenes in this, ep- in this uh, episode. This is a um, less of a talky and more of a looky episode. <laughs> there were long sequences where we were like, wow, have they spoken in how long? <laughs> But it was gripping. Good stuff from director Michael Schultz. But speaking of great visuals, Epi. Yeah. What jumped out to you from the preview montage for this episode? Well, my description of the episode also applies to the preview montage. Uh, so it is a nice synecdote of the episode itself. A uh, lot more looky, a little less talky. Uh, the notes that I wrote down for it were action, 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 threat, sex joke, Chase. <laughs> <laughs> Dead Man in Pool, Chase, Beth and Jim uh, chemistry is mm-hmm. how I noted that. Yeah. And then more chasing. I guess that's another thing we should probably mention before we jump into this episode. I think this is the first Beth episode. It makes sense that it would mm-hmm. be. I was amazed at how early she was in- introduced, just thinking back over the series. There's a period where she's a regular character, but earlier on, she just appears occasionally, mm-hmm. you know, usually bailing Jim out. And I hadn't realized that she was a character who was, you know, in the first few episodes. That was really awesome to see her uh, start. I believe it's the debut of the character and of Gretchen Corbett, of the actress. She did not appear in the pilot and um, really quickly became part of the fabric of the show. And I think to this day, a lot of a lot of people, uh, men in particular, who grew up watching the show, like just in IMDb comments and stuff, you see lots of like, I still have a crush (laughs) on Beth Davenport. (laughs) Yeah. She's one of my favorite characters, and I, I definitely put a plug in when you guys were choosing which show to look. I, my, my thought was, Let, let's do a Beth episode if we can. So I'm glad to do this one. Yeah, it's good. And she's also kind of fully formed. Like all the characters, we see little bits of character development over the course of the series. But I feel like all the things that we really love about the Beth and Jim relationship, uh, which we talked about a lot in a previous episode we did, the portrait of Elizabeth, mm-hmm. we see all those seeds or not even seeds. We just see a lot of those dynamics in this episode. Yeah. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we say thank you to John Adamus, the writer next door. Find his go-to resources for storytellers and creatives who want to tell better stories at writernextdoor.com. Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, the McLaughlin Group for Nerds, radiovsthemartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis, with his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Shane Lieber, 
Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Adam Alexander, and Chris. And finally, big thank yous to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. We've recently updated our Patreon with new opportunities for sponsorship, so check out patreon.com slash 200 today and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. We, in fact, start the episode off uh, with emergency response, sirens, fire trucks, uh, ambulances. Talk about immediate res. Straight into uh, responding to a fire uh, at the Regal Motel. And this whole first sequence, like you were saying, more uh, looky, less talky. There's sirens and there might be some radio chatter. I don't really remember, but there's no dialogue. Uh, as we yeah. see these first responders entering this hotel, throwing out this mattress that's all burned, and then coming down the stairs with uh, a body on a stretcher as a woman in a coat pushes past the police, twitches the blanket off, sees the face of the man on the stretcher and just screams, no! I'm laughing here. I don't want to sound callous. Uh, what I'm laughing about is the cut that they pull off right there at that moment because she screams, no, and then we cut to, I think, Rockford saying no. Right, about taking the case, right? <laughs> yes, the most important no. Yeah, we go straight from this very dramatic, intense, a man just died. Right. Right into uh, some some lighthearted comedy. <laughs> One of the signatures of the show in the first season, I think, there's a lot of this kind mm-hmm. of balancing the heavy subject matter of murder and death and you know crime with the uh, comedic aspects of the character yeah but yeah as you say we cut from there to rockford saying no to beth davenport so this whole sequence is great so this this all plays out as jim is taking his fishing pole and going down to the seashore <laughs> to just <laughs> cast into the water very obviously doing his best not to be interested in what beth has to say but she's taken on this uh, this client who's poor and can't pay, but is really, uh, really needs help. She wants Jim to work for her on this client's behalf. And I think maybe crucially, this this woman owns property in Arizona, so she doesn't qualify for a public defender. So Beth is just basically doing it for free mm-hmm. and just wants Rockford to do the same. She just wants Rockford to meet this woman and Calhoun. Just meet her and talk to her is kind of what she, mm-hmm. she backs down to from, uh, you know, work for free. <laughs> of course, Rockford says no. And then we cut yes. to him in the room talking to yeah. the woman. At this point, this is probably the first one of these because this is the first time we've seen Beth. But in the 200 a day continuity, this is one of our favorite cuts from episodes past where <laughs> Rockford <Right>. says <laughs> no to Beth. And then the next scene starts with him doing whatever she wanted him <laughs> to do. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I, in my heart of hearts, I hoped that the rest of the episode would only cut when somebody <laughs> said no. <laughs> one detail out of this, though, that I that I picked up on that explains a lot about Beth is that uh, uh, Rockford says that she can afford to take these cases on because she picked the right grandfather. Uh, right. Yeah. And I think we've remarked on this before, how Beth seems to live a lifestyle mm-hmm. that's a little higher caliber or a little higher class than Rockford yeah. does, even though she's also never making any money. And I, so this is kind of just, just a line to kind of give us the sense of her heart's in the right place, but she comes from some kind of moneyed family or something. And later in the episode, we get a little bit more about that uh, with her, like knowing what schools are good and stuff like that. Yeah. There's some good class dynamics in, in this episode. It's, it's interesting. Okay. So we, now we've just seen the introduction of Beth Mm -hmm. and uh, I think they've done some really good things with this. 
Well, first of all, there's clear chemistry between Gretchen and James Gardner, not Jim Rockford. <laughs> well, I mean, both. But they establish her not as in, like, this isn't a Beth origin story or anything like that. We we see them as if they've always been friends, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a reoccurring pattern that they're in. We've obviously, in our own uh, podcast here, we've jumped around quite a bit and we've come back to this spot. And it feels just like any episode would be. Mm-hmm. But they are just right away establishing some of the important dynamics between them as soon as they possibly can so that they so that we can see them play out during the episode. Yeah, when they're on the beach, there was some kind of comment that made it clear that they used to be in a relationship. There's a kiss later on mm-hmm. in the episode. And it's very relaxed. It's not like there's any tension about that. It's just that there's an intimacy between them. And uh, I love how Becker's discussion with with Jim helps establish Mm. a character, like what you said, Nathan. And also he had this great line about her collecting lost causes like rare coins. Mm -hmm. It it, it makes sense in how she's kind of pushing this on Jim. Uh, And maybe, you know, the rare coins is like a date to her having money as well. Yeah. (laughs) The kind of trifecta there, the... Jim, Becker, Beth triangle is really nice because they all have a professional relationship as well as being friends. Yeah. Yeah. But Jim does meet Anne, uh, the woman who we saw in the first scene, uh, the the bereaved, Anne Calhoun. She's being blamed. She's being charged essentially with her um, husband's death. That's the, the man who died. She's distraught, obviously. In this scene, it's pretty brief where they're just talking, but we see on uh, Jim's face that he's doing his best not to feel bad for her because he doesn't want to take a case that he's not getting paid for. <laughs> she starts openly crying and and instead of like leaving the camera on her, you they turn it to Jim and you just watch him squirm and it's not mm-hmm. the typical kind of squirming that you would expect. It's it's good James Gardner squirming. With empathy. Oh, this woman is in pain and you could see his struggle in his face and you could see the moment when he's like, ah, mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this. He gets reeled in on the hook. The resignation. Yeah. From here, we go to Dennis's desk at the police station. Yeah. we uh, He has a heavy workload, of course. Always has a heavy workload. <laughs> and he says that the case is closed. And he runs down for Rockford and thus for us uh, kind of the salient facts about what happened. Right. Uh, there were witnesses at the hotel, other occupants who heard them fighting. They heard him storm into his bedroom. There is a 15-minute period where she could have done it. Um, then she left and then the fire broke out. The coroner's report says that he was smothered before the fire started. So he did not die in the fire, but there was a cigarette in his hand and it was all staged to try and, and cover up the murder. Uh, Rockford he uses his, his keen legal mind to poke <laughs> holes in this case, uh, that the opportunity is wide open. Anyone could have walked in in that 15 minutes. The motive's a little shaky, yeah. like lover's spats. They don't always turn into murder. And Becker, this is when he uses that great line that you that you called out. Um, he calls out Jim for saying that Beth Davenport must be behind this. <laughs> and you just want us to reopen the case so that you can't do it. Because as we know, Jim Rockford doesn't work on open cases. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is this is good stuff because it's Jim's con here is great. All he's doing is kicking up as much suspicion as he can to try and uh, get Becker to open the case. Like, doesn't he even suggest that the body might not be the victim? If it got burned, you can't even make a positive ID. <laughs> His face was not burned. She identified him. <laughs> 
So he's reaching for whatever he can in the hopes that some way this case will be taken away from him and he doesn't have to do it. Right. And while he's doing that, you also get to see, like you said, um, not only uh, the relationship here between uh, Jim and Dennis, but also that Dennis knows Beth and and knows that dynamic. And that that is an ongoing dynamic. And that's something that has existed in the fiction. And also just a, a really good example of something we talk about a lot, which is the scenes doing yeah. multiple things. Uh, it gives us all this plot information about the death and insinuates all the weird things about it while also delivering the character information and a little bit of the backstory of their, um, you know, of how they all know each other and they all kind of have this professional relationship. And it's funny. Yeah. And it's a moment of, like you were saying, Jim is doing this manipulation or attempting to put one over on Dennis mm-hmm. to open up the case to get him and himself out of it. Uh, and meanwhile, we're taking all this wonderful exposition uh, like sugar. You know, it's not like, okay, tell us about the plot. Let's move on. Yeah. And it ends with a great wink. <laughs> Jim winks at Dennis on his way out. <laughs> that's when we know he's taking the case. Right. We go from here to Beth and Jim. Uh, sharing a meal. Yeah. We open with Rockford uh, asking for the hot sauce and Beth giving him <laughs> gi- giving him some side eye because he knows that that's not good for his stomach. More about their history, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. She, yeah. We get all these little clues about how she knows his personal mm-hmm. habits, you know, just in that mm-hmm. way that when you spend a lot of time with someone, you know, you know how they, they operate. And I think like you were saying, Emily, it's it's not overt. It's just kind of in their uh, comfortable relationship. That there's a history there. Um, as far as I could tell, Rockford was eating chowder. <laughs> not not chili, so still keeping to my separation of detective food universes. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's putting hot sauce in chowder, which oh, is a weird choice. That. <laughs> that, that is written in my notes. <laughs> I was like, hot sauce on chowder? Which I think then takes chowder from being like, oh, okay, that's like a normal food to like, that's a garbage food once you put <laughs> hot sauce on it. <laughs> Well, and, and he doubles down because he, he just covers it in uh, oyster crackers, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Like After he makes the face about putting so much hot sauce on it. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to some good food stuff, we also uh, get some good money stuff as Rockford. Mm-hmm. He agrees oh, yeah. to take the case. If Beth will pay his expenses. And then if he proves that Anne is innocent, then he'll take his $200 a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a, I don't think I've seen this formula in other episodes that we've done where he kind of tries to split the difference. There's different kinds of arguing about money that he does with different people, right? Like with Beth, it's often uh, she's hiring him, but can't pay him or doesn't want to pay the full rate. And, And we'll see a lot of good stuff about that in this episode. With Angel, Angel's just trying to, like, Angel's like, can you lend me $5? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, <laughs> 10 Can you lend me 10 You know, like, that's... But, like, I don't think we've seen this specific, essentially a gamble, right? Mm-hmm. Unless it's just, he knows she's got money, and, you know, he figures he, that, that she's going to win the case. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to make a safe bet, and it'll sound like a deal to her. Yeah, I mean, I think he's kind of talk. This is how he makes it right with himself. Yeah, fine. Yeah. I'm going to do this thing, but at least pay my expenses, and then if we're successful, you know, like right, right, kind of kicking off that eventual payday down the road. Yeah, if that's what he has to do to sleep <laughs> at night, you know, more power to him. <laughs> the only other thing here 
is that he asks uh, Beth to get all the information from Anne that she can about Kevin Calhoun, uh, her her former husband, the one who died. Yeah. I got a quick question about that. He arrives at this deal. If we win, then you, know, you pay me the 200 And then he just follows it up with, oh, do yeah. all of this detective yeah. work. <laughs> he just dumps it in her lap. And so that was my other theory for that moment was that he thought, maybe he can get her to do all the work <laughs> and just sit back and collect the 200 a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. that's immediately changed, I think, by the next scene. Yeah, so the next sequence of him investigating. So first of all, he gets her to agree to pay for his expenses regardless. Yeah. And then he immediately <laughs> goes to Arizona. <laughs> I just want to make a comment to there about Beth in that scene, because it, it'll get called back later. But, you know, she's fighting and fighting with him. And then she gives and she's got this very thoughtful look as she's giving. So it was just an interesting turn to in her character where mm-hmm. yeah. Jim feels like he really has the upper hand in this argument with her at that moment. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, we go from here to Parker, Arizona. Uh, we have Jim driving a, a blue rental car around. Throws me a little bit at first. Same here. He's not going to drive the yeah. Firebird all the way up. There. <laughs> I had to actually see the Arizona plates to realize what had happened. <laughs> like, why is he driving a blue car? Did they replace it? Yeah, what's going <laughs> on? And, then, and it wasn't even that the plate was an Arizona plate. Like, I, I, just, I recognized that it wasn't his <laughs> license plate. <laughs> so he's kicking around Parker, Arizona, going to all these... Uh, locations to follow up on whatever information he got from Beth. So it goes to Parker City Hall. He goes to the Central Valley Press uh, building, I guess, a newspaper of some kind, and the DMV. So this is all just shown to us through the camera um, without any dialogue or him interacting with other people, really. He's going into buildings and coming out and writing stuff in a notepad. Eventually, we do see someone wearing a very nice-looking watch observing him from kind of the foreground of the camera so it's kind of over his shoulder almost we know that he's being followed uh this watch will come back so we get a good uh <laughs> visual clarity on this guy where's this watch but yeah so rockford leaves the dmv he makes some more notes uh he gets in his car he drives out of parker arizona and then we get an extremely suspenseful musical sting as we see yeah. this big rig <laughs> tab pull out and follow him onto the road this all leads into this this very long but really compelling chase sequence. I just have to say too that the fact that it was a rig felt so Rockford to me. There's so much that's done in the series with trucks because of Rocky that it just felt like, oh yeah, it's a truck that's going to chase him. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so intimidating. Yeah, and then that pays off with Rocky as we'll get to. <laughs> and it's also this giant truck because he's in a little. You know, mm-hmm. sports car, reminiscent of his own. And then there's this massive, monstrous thing that's going to be bearing down on him. Well, it's nice kind of visually because it really fills the screen, mm-hmm. right? Like they're in they're in the Southwest. Yeah. They're in these like desert roads, mountain mountainous terrain, lots of land and lots of sky. And then you have this giant cab uh, that's filling the screen every time the camera kind of shows us them in, in close proximity. I do want to point out my favorite shot in this scene uh, which we see a few times, uh, Rockford's loafers mm. putting the pedal to the metal. Yeah. And how almost impotent it is in this car. <laughs> we're, we're seeing moments in this car where we will see the um, 
speedometer and the car is having trouble getting up past 70. Yeah. It adds to a lot to the tension of the scene. We see that and also his facial expressions do so much to carry yeah. the scene. Yeah. So the A to Z is pretty straightforward. This this cab tries to run Rockford off the road. He manages to keep on the road while they're in a dangerous area where there's a cliff and then it pushes him yeah. off in a more dirt filled area. He goes off the road. He gets stuck. The rig comes after him again. He manages to get out just in time <laughs> and then they continue this pursuit up into the kind of the hilly part of this uh, highway where finally Rockford's able to use the incline to his advantage uh, to get a little space and then finds a finds a sharp turn onto like a smaller little bridge over a gulf or something that's too narrow for the uh, truck to pursue and then he's able to get away from there. That's the storyboard but the the way that this whole thing is shot and the music the cuts and like everything make it really exciting. <laughs> It's a very tension-filled encounter. Uh, and we were talking about how there's film sequences with no dialogue. This is definitely one of them where you're just watching Jim's face and the guy who's driving the um, cab got this grim expression on his face and these giant glasses, which you can see even when the truck is far away. So you're just like looking at his eyes. But the, mm-hmm. the thing that I was uh, struck by was uh, Jim, uh, James Garner did so many of his own driving stunts. And, you know, when he passed away, was you know, mourned and beloved by the, the driving community. It feels real because you actually have the stars. Yeah. They're, they're doing something that's pretty athletic and pretty skillful and dangerous and it just adds to the tension as well yeah for sure the way that you know they occupy the car it it feels real we say that a lot and that's because it is right because they're in those cars doing those sequences uh probably not at the speeds that they're showing us obviously but when he like spins out into the into the dirt area or makes that hard turn onto the bridge the camera shows us the entire sequence it's very uh almost documentary like right but then that's combined with all these great dramatic shots showcasing the different scale between the two cars mm-hmm. and how close they are and how there's nothing else around. And I think that's where a lot of the why it's kind of surprising that there's so much drama is that it's not really a chase. There's mm-hmm. They're together the entire time. It's always a question of like, yeah. can Jim save himself mm-hmm. for the next quarter mile until he can find some kind of opportunity? The moment to moment of it is are these here is the immediate thing we need to deal with. Here's how the road isn't going to help Jim. Here's a car <laughs> yeah. that is now in front of Jim that he has to get around. You know, like to describe it, you're just like, here's a chase encounter. Here's a chase encounter. Here's a chase encounter or whatever. But it's not those and it's not the sum of those. It's like how it's conveyed that really pulls this together. It still has a great uh, tension to it. Like it just, it keeps hitting that part of your brain that can't let you not think about being in that car with that giant Mm -hmm. truck barreling down on you, feeling the gas go out from underneath them while he's doing it or, or being stuck in, in the dirt if you've driven a car for any amount of time, you've been stuck mm-hmm. somewhere where you like you have no traction. That's a sinking feeling. And that's <laughs> when you don't have a truck trying to kill you. Yeah. Well, it's all very visceral. You can feel all those feelings. It's good. We're, we're gushing over this this thing that you really need to see and appreciate, <laughs> but I think it's worth it. It also takes a lot yeah. of the screen time. It's like six or seven minutes, maybe. Like a long sequence. Um, and it's totally worth it. Yeah. But Jim Rockford does get away. There was a commercial break once he gets across the bridge and we have the shot of the guy who's wearing the watch, the same guy who's been following him, frustrated that he can't get over the bridge. Then it cuts to commercial. (laughs) Then we come back. Jim's pulling into a gas station to get some help. Uh, (laughs) 
this is great Jim's life intersecting with the life of someone mm-hmm. else who has their own life moment. Yep. Yep. Mechanic uh, out in the middle of nowhere in Arizona, refusing to help him out until Rockford threatens to... Uh, <laughs> give me, what is it? Give me a dollar or I'll crack yeah. you up and like make you bang. A dime. A dime. <laughs> That's right. One of the things I love about this exchange here, well, there's a few things. Number one, that Rockford's first instinct is to call the authorities. Mm-hmm. This is a really sort of standard thing about the heroism of (laughs) Jim Rockford Mm -hmm. (laughs) that somebody's job is to deal with this. It's probably not me. So we'll let them do it. If there's anyone who's, whose life Jim feels very strongly about, it's his own. So when it is threatened, uh, he wants something to happen. He's arguing over this dime. He has a dollar that he gives the guy for the dime. This argument does not need to happen. He does not need to threaten this guy. The guy says, put some gas in the tank and then maybe you'll have a dime as change. The deal that he comes up with after the threat, after he like strong arms the dime out of the guy, is to give him a dollar and tell him to put 90 cents in the car. Mm -hmm. This is an argument that doesn't need to happen. But clearly, like you said, this guy has a life that he's having. He doesn't necessarily want to interrupt it by Jim. And Jim has just, his heart has got to be racing. Mm -hmm. He keeps making comments about um, uh, how his life was in danger, how he was almost killed. And you can see that nobody is really caring. But but for Jim, he like almost died. (laughs) And the whole world should recognize this. Exactly. And this is the first of a little callback loop about no one taking Jim's as seriously as he thinks they should be taking him about the fact that he, his life Mm -hmm. was put into danger. The the highway patrol is of no help. You know, they found the rig. It had been stolen and abandoned. Uh, There's some, some banter about, did you check for fingerprints and stuff like that? And uh, it's very much (laughs) big city boy coming out to the country (laughs) and making unreasonable demands. So he gets no satisfaction from the highway patrol. Yeah. We have a just a cut of a plane uh, landing back mm-hmm. in L.A. So mm-hmm. another one of those good expenses, mm-hmm. I would say. And uh, heads back to his trailer. <laughs> so this whole gag that comes next, I think, is entirely premised on it being early in the series run. <laughs> but it's still good. Right. Yeah. Rockford goes into his trailer. It's dark. And someone in there is like, <laughs> stop, put your hands up. I immediately knew that it was Rocky. Yeah, yeah. But it's still a pretty good humorous reveal because we get Jim uh, putting his hands up and then turning around and turning on the light and then just being like, Rocky, (laughs) glaring at his dad, who is holding a gun. Yes. Uh, It's Rockford's gun, not Rocky's, but neither of them have a permit. So uh, the cookie jar doesn't make an appearance. So I don't remember that. Or did I miss it? No, no. Yeah. Also, that gun was way bigger than the one that we see later in the series. <laughs> it was yeah. probably too big to fit in a cookie jar. It is mm-hmm. established that there's no permit for this gun, mm-hmm. which is an important bit. And the great line that Jim has, there's two yeah, people who yeah. are trying to kill me today and turns out one is my dad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And that sets off Rocky into the, again, for us, one of our favorite recurring bits, which is that Rocky is both worried about his son's safety and also thinks he should give it up and just drive a truck like he like he wants him to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Rocky's got the, the line, the uh, for a man who doesn't like to get stomped on, you're in the wrong line of work. <laughs> you know, it's a, a thesis statement for Jim Rockford. Yeah. I loved how this is sort of turns into Rocky's forensics 
mm-hmm. because he starts grilling Jim on, was it a Mac? Was it this other, a Kenilworth? What kind of cab did it have? And Jim's like, I don't know. I don't know. But then as, as Rocky pushes him and says, but I raised you, you, you grown up in trucks. Jim says, well, it had this and that. And so he mm-hmm. did know and notice. I loved having Rocky be able to bring in his his specialized area of knowledge and get a few more details. And it paid off what you were saying earlier about how the fact that it was a truck, not only did that make it an exciting visual chase, it pays off here because Rocky gives us an important little piece of, it's not really a clue, but it's more of a... An interpretation about what was going on. Though yeah. I guess at the end of the day, maybe he was wrong. Yeah. But we can talk about that later. Rocky's saying that the kind of cab that Rockford has described is so heavy and can go so fast because it has certain gears. Uh, If that guy had wanted him dead, he would have killed him. So he must have just wanted to really scare him to death. (laughs) (laughs) We go from there to Rockford and Beth arguing over expenses. Yes. The the point of contention is about um, some toothpaste. But what we kind of quickly get to is that Rockford, he's angry again because no one seems to be taking it seriously that he was almost killed. Like Rocky didn't seem to take it very seriously. He just wanted to talk about the kind of truck. And now Beth isn't taking it seriously. She just wants to argue with him about toothpaste. (laughs) Rockford's feeling magnanimous here because he does tell her that she doesn't have to pay for his new jammies. This sequence took, struck me as another of the, they're having this little bickering business going on. So it's their relationship that's forefronted instead of the, the input. And most of the actual dialogue is, is the bickering. Right. But when they drive away, yeah. we have the dramatic close up of the liquid that was underneath the car. Right. And then yes. we go into this sequence where his brake line was loosened. And so they're going over this, uh, over the, over this hill. And then all of a sudden he's out of control because the brakes stop working. Which does kind of immediately undercut uh, Rocky's idea that they weren't trying to kill him. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty serious. And also, this this is where we get to see James Garner, driving expert, all the things that he's doing to try and slow it down. Like, those are actual driving yeah. things. Like, he pulls the emergency brake, he starts shifting the gears. Everything he can do to mechanically influence the car's speed without brakes, he's just kind of doing uh, just as part of the shot, which I really appreciated. Yeah. The other thing I really like about this is that when we hit the danger, when, when the brakes are out, he pushes the brake all the way down and, and it's very clear to everyone involved that the brakes aren't working. Uh, we're done with dialogue. Mm. Mm-hmm. It feels like the chase sequence we just yeah. saw, but also has a bit to do with their relationship here where they had the bickering that, you know, and again, nobody's taking him serious. And then it's serious. We're going to let Jim try and solve the problem. Cause it, like, this is a thing that, that Jim does professionally, which is avoid getting killed <laughs> with another choice. You might have had Beth yelling at him, stop it, do something, you know, which either mm-hmm. undermines her character right. or has this weird effect of overlaying tension on tension, where if you have another mm-hmm. character pressuring somebody to do something they can't do, then you're distracting from the danger that they're actually in. And that might work better in like a comedy or something, but it, it kind of pulls away your attention from just the fact that they probably are going to die. <laughs> They focus on what's important in that scene rather than using the bickering, which they do in other places to distract from things that might be a little boring. They let it go here. 
Mm, yeah, it kind of seamlessly goes from the bickering into the real danger. He ends up managing to pull the car uh, through into this like construction zone and hit a big pile of dirt. And that's what brings them to a stop without anyone getting getting injured. And then uh, bookends the scene with Beth. She gets out of the car and she's visibly shaken and, and upset like anyone would be. Right. Yeah. And and Rockford gets to have a gets to pithily cut her off when she tries to talk about how how shaken she is. I forget the line. She asks a rhetorical question and uh, he just like says no or something. He just walks away. But they get out okay. And they do note that no one even knew that he was going to be in Arizona except for Anne, Beth and Rockford and whoever killed Kevin. So, right. He is now convinced that mm. Anne didn't do this murder, I think. So it ends up being a motivating point for Rockford where mm-hmm. it's gotten serious and gotten personal. Yeah. I think that's a thing. If if you're ever in a situation where you're looking to hire Rockford <laughs> or Rockford-like PI and they're telling you no, just oh. fake an attempt on their life. Uh, Rockford does uh, go with Beth to talk to Anne again uh, and reveals, here's the big reveal, before they were married two years ago, there is no record of a Kevin Calhoun. That was awesome. Yeah. No birth certificate, no DMV records, nothing in the town he claimed to to have grown up in or lived in. We get some of the most exposition-y exposition here from Anne filling in our backstory. They met, he was this romantic soul, he was a poet. They ended up in LA and then we quickly go to Rockford asking her about this kind of, it's not really an alibi, but it's another thing. It had come up earlier, but now we really get into it, which is that one of the reasons they were arguing is they'd been at some party. And then later, Anne said that they didn't know anyone in LA. So it was like, why were you at a party if you don't know anyone? And he was apparently invited. He called her and told her to come, but then he was drunk. Then they left. And so Anne doesn't know who he knew, doesn't recognize this uh, picture of these society people that Rockford shows Mm -hmm. her that were the ones that threw the party. But they said that they crash and she says that he had an invitation this is the the thin end of the wedge yeah. for rockford to start following up on yeah this episode kind of goes from a lot of visuals with not a lot of talking to like a lot of semi-complicated plot in the second yeah. half which is a little a little counter to how most of these episodes are written you just mentioned this thin edge here when this gets delivered it certainly clicks to me in mm-hmm. hindsight but watching it i'm like oh that's odd Mm-hmm. And I don't think of it as like right. the starting point of the investigation, which it, it is. I don't know if I had at the time any theories in my head about what was going on because it just seemed. Well, there's no information before this point. Obviously, something yeah. is going right. on. Um, and now we're starting to learn about the something. Also, we were kind of suspectless before this, right? Because it was just Anne. All the arrows mm-hmm. pointed to her. So this is where we start getting to some some place where there could be somebody else involved. Oh, and um, before we leave this scene, Rockford makes this great, uh, has this great line. He says, only two people are above suspicion. And that's you and me to Beth. Or, I guess that must be after he, they've left mm-hmm. um, Anne. But I just loved, again, they're reinforcing the relationship and the trust between yeah. Beth and Rockford, even though <laughs> there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of, you know, maneuvering and positioning still. Yeah. He always sees her on his side, regardless of what else, whatever else anybody else is doing. Yeah. And it also shows just how much his trust in Rocky has been shook by the gun incident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. It's a, it's a nice, again, understated, but in context, just very strong moment for them. 
they uh, get back in his car. Yeah, he checks it. He checks the car. I love how she kind of argues with him a little bit. Like, what's going to have happened? And he's like, what are you talking yeah. about? Oh, so good. <laughs> But uh, as they uh, drive, they talk over this new information. So the party was thrown by Elizabeth Gorman and Clive Russell, who are kind of new in town, new money, with some kind of connection to this movie production of a book called The Dark and Bloody Ground. Yeah. And Beth says, that's the biggest movie since Birth of a Nation. Wow. (laughs) Oh, boy. Thanks. Mm Mm-hmm. And she recalls that someone named Gorman wrote the original book. But that's kind of the B plot of this uh, uh, back and forth. Where the main <laughs> thing is that Rockford wants to go to the police because they have information about this case. And you, you get the sense that he knows that they'll hold it against him, right? If it comes up that he had right. information and didn't go to the police. Beth does not want to go to the police about this. Not yet. Mm-hmm. And this is <laughs> this is when they're stopping the stoplight. And she reaches over and grabs the keys out of the ignition and puts them in her bra, it looks like. And we get the moment from the preview montage of Rockford saying, oh, like, you think that's going to stop me? Specifically, it's an indication that he's already been there. He says it never has before or something like that. The two of them are intimate enough. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he's just making a statement out of the blue. The description of it makes him sound like a real creepo. But on the screen, it's more about there's a little bit of a playfulness to it where it's like, okay, if you want to play that game. Right. And it doesn't read as creepy. Creepy, at least not to me. Well, she uses that moment <clears throat> to say, "You're not going to take this." I'm, you know, I'm, and that that actually was a really common line that people that women would use in in fiction at the time. Put something in their bra, and this is yet another moment where we're showing the history between Jim and um, Beth. Because that that line, short memory, that's when he says that. And he says, you must have a short memory if you think that I'm not going to touch you. And so, yeah, it's totally Mm -hmm. creepy now. Nobody would ever do that. But that's, that's what I read from it. She's calling the line there for him not to cross. And then he's saying, well, there's actually a different part of our relationship here that means that I have those privileges. So, whew, really weird watching it today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure if it's not that it's aged. It's just something that it's yeah. like, that is part of a moment in time. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We have we have moved on. But I do think it's a clear indication that they had yeah. been together. Oh, yeah. exactly. mm-hmm. And then what actually ends that standoff, because uh, he kind of moves towards her and then yeah. stops. And then someone starts beeping because they're in yeah. traffic. Yeah. Not a stoplight. And uh, so he's like, look, you don't have to tell me. Tell tell them. And so she rolls her eyes and gives him the keys back. But then uh, she gives him all this stuff about like, look, since you're working for me, this privilege information, you don't have to go to the police with it. Okay. Technically, it's not part of the penal code, but it's like an unwritten law. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Rockford does not believe in unwritten laws, but she wants him to find out who Calhoun really was before she says before confronting Gorman and Russell about it, because she knows that that's where he's going next. And we end on a on a gag about going elsewhere for legal advice. Yeah, he wants to he wants to call an attorney because he doesn't trust what she's saying, which is good. From here, we go to that confrontation that was set up for us in the last couple lines there are at a very fancy club of some kind uh there is a racetrack and mm-hmm. horses and in a nice visual move we see our watch wearer uh with binoculars looking at a horse uh and then we see rockford with binoculars looking at the guy with the binoculars <laughs> yeah 
And we get uh, Rockford running a little bit of a con just to get in and find out uh, this some piece of information. He walks up to this table where the three of them are Watchwearer, whose name we learn is Elliot. The other two, Elizabeth Gorman and Clive Russell. They're all at this little table and he just walks up and he just has this patter from the first moment that just takes it as assumed that they all know each other. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> did, you, did you know I almost walked right past you? Can you believe I didn't see you there like that? And there's this nice moment where it shifts because they're pushing him away, pushing him away. And then he throws the question off to Elliot or something. And and he just like sits down smoothly and the conversation goes on. Yeah, he really masterfully takes the dynamic in both hands, right? If I just act like I know you, you'll hesitate long enough for me to convince you that you just forgot (laughs) me. Uh, So he claims to have been at the party and that's where they met. Forget about all that Mr. Rockford stuff. Just call me Jim. I thought we settled that at the party. Yeah. (laughs) They're kind of like, well, if anyone has this much confidence, they must be right. But the face of Elliot this whole time, because Elliot's the guy who tried to run him off the road in Arizona. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So his face in the background is a masterclass. Yeah. So he gets this convo, this conversation kind of going by apologizing for his friend Calhoun. There's an interaction that sets off Elliot where he's like, look, I know you weren't a guest. I know he wasn't because I made the list and there were guards at every door. And I know exactly who was there and no one who mm-hmm. wasn't invited was at the party. But we have now determined right. they all knew that Calhoun was at the party. Yeah. Therefore, he must have been invited. So beautifully done. Not a gay crasher like they told the police and the press. This is I mean, like, so this is a thing that I really like about, I guess, like a Rockford con as opposed to like uh, some of the more modern takes on them. This just has to get the conversation going until he gets some information. And then if he's found out, it doesn't matter matter to him mm-hmm. you know rather than this becoming a long drawn out thing where the drama is will he yeah. be discovered it's not that it's just what can he learn before he d- gets discovered we get a just a really quick little scene with rockford and beth uh after this Beth says that she knows Elliot. He arranges parties for rich people and he went to all the good schools. Yeah. Another reference to like how she grew up maybe a more elevated social circle. And then Rockford asks if she's embarrassed to be seen with him in public because he doesn't even have new money. Yeah. Because she makes a (laughs) distinction between old money and new money. And then he's like, I don't even have new money. It's a joke. But also the scene ends right there. Yeah. I think it's the point in the episode, like it's really short and it's not necessary for anything plot wise. But I think what it does is it shows us a little bit of Rockford's vulnerability about Beth, how it does matter to him what she thinks of him. I have a a money thesis here because like this whole episode has been about how much he's supposed to make 200 a day and also his expenses and he's like, well, you cover the expenses and then otherwise I'll, you know, if we win, I'll get the money. Because Rockford is neither new nor old money, just living costs money. Mm-hmm. He can't just wander about being uh, in Beth's world or anything like that without it being a burden. He, What he was going to do before Beth showed up was to take his fishing rod out <laughs> and fish, right? Not only is that like, maybe he'll catch a meal. So there you go. There's some money he's saving, but also he's not spending any money that hasn't already been spent doing that particular activity. Mm -hmm. That's something that he can do 
pretty much free. And anything you're doing free when you're when you're living on the economic edge there is important. There is a tension here that isn't on top of the whole episode, but is underneath it between the, 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 those two worlds mm-hmm. that Beth won't. She's like, oh, I'll just do this for free. <laughs> and he's like, I can't do this for free. I don't have that option. I just, I, I just think it, it adds so much to the richness of the characters just to have this thirty-second scene, and then from here is where we get to the to the good bedroom scene and the next round of exposition. Yes. <laughs> Rockford's in bed wearing his jammies, maybe the new ones he bought. We don't know. Yeah, <laughs> reading the book, the original book, "The Dark and Bloody Ground." Yes, by Steve Gorman. Uh, there's a knock on the door. As a Rockford watcher, it's either the cops. Or goo. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciated how she actually goes, it's Beth. Yes. <laughs> this is where we get another round of expositions here, but it's interleaved with, I think, Emily, what you were saying about the, the blocking of this scene. It's funny with the, the door opening and closing and them arguing. And then eventually they're talking through the door. Uh, and it's here that she makes the comment about for $200 a day, you could at least put some clothes on, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the, there's business with like her saying, this would be easier if I wasn't talking through the door. And he's like, not for me. So I think that's all in service of, you know, keeping us engaged in the scene while we get all this uh, info dump, which yeah. briefly is that Beth looked into this guy Russell's background and he was a copyright lawyer. And it turns out that there's this aspect to copyright law. If you're an author, then you sell your rights to a publisher, but then you die before the publisher can renew the copyright. The rights go back to your estate, not to the person who paid you for the rights. So um, in this case, they go to the widow. And this is what Mm -hmm. happened with this book, Dark and Bloody Ground. The author, um, Gorman, died mid-production of the movie. And then the lawyer, this guy, Russell, swooped in and made a deal with her before the studio could, I guess. That's kind of my read of what she said. Um, And then turned around and resold the rights to the studio and made a tidy profit. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of details in this exposition. That's kind of my summary. The scene is great. And I think I get caught up in the sort of entertainment of the scene that I, I feel like this is one of those moments where... I didn't quite get the information that I needed to get when I first saw it. But I will say that this information is classic and wonderful Rockford Files style. Our mystery hinges on red tape and bureaucracy (laughs) somewhere. And and it's legitimate. It's a murder over some strange law. And this is a real law. Yes. Yes. So this apparently was a plot, like a plot twist that Roy Huggins had wanted to do a story about for years. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's great. It was in an episode that never got produced of a show he did before this called Trauma. It was in a two hour like TV movie that he did that never got produced. (laughs) This particular copyright and and beth calls out the part of the u.s code that has this provision in it he was he had this i this twist like in his back pocket waiting for a project to to come together finally (laughs) it could go into the rockford files when we were trying to search around for different beth davenport uh, episodes i believe i saw someone say that the the particular code number or the the section number that she Mm -hmm. stated wasn't the right one 
<laughs> Apparently, this part of the code was revised later in the 70s. Oh, so maybe it's a timing thing. It is no longer. Ah. Yes, it is no longer the case. Um, according to our, our textbook here, uh, Ed Robertson's 30 Years of the Rockford Files. Oh, wonderful. But yeah, so I just love that factoid. And this whole scene kind of bears out for me. Like, this is this idea that he was so excited about. But in context, it's a little overwrought. <laughs> like, there's a little too much going on with it to really be compelling to me. I'm kind of like, okay, uh, where is this going? <laughs> um, and also, as the end of the scene shows, yeah, yeah. that doesn't actually explain why this other guy, uh, Kevin Calhoun, was killed. Yeah, so... It's pertinent to our story, but we don't know why yet. And it do- it doesn't make sense that Beth really knows why yet. She's not actually saying she yeah, is. She even says she doesn't know how it adds up, but it seems relevant. Right. And so th- this whole thing is interrupted by a phone call. So after Rockford finally gets his day clothes on, there's a phone call. He answers it. And it's Clive Russell. Sketchiest invitation ever. Oh, right. Come to my fancy mansion in Bel Air. Come to the pool house. <laughs> sketchy <laughs> yes and robert's like yeah this seems about right beth is talking to him the whole time right like he's yeah like while he's on the phone <laughs> yeah uh and the guy's like don't come to the front come to the back please please step under the anvil <laughs> over the spiked pit don't wake up the leopard yeah yeah but this does set up a great uh gag that ends the scene where oh yeah he tells her where this place is, and she's like, oh, I know that place. You couldn't even get in the back gate. And he says, bet you $10. <laughs> so we go to uh, Russell's house. Beth accompanies Rockford. They walk in through a conveniently open back gate. I kind of wish that there had mm-hmm. been a follow-up to the gag here. I was expecting it, but they just go in through the gate. But we get this extremely dramatic uh, shot from the bottom of the pool of the body floating in the pool that they come across once they get to the pool house. And sure enough, Clive Russell has been drowned in his own pool. Then the lights go out and there are shots. I I just wanted to say that I love this underwater shot. It's from underwater. You hear Beth and Jim talking about the body and you can see Jim kind of crouch down to try and fish the body out. And I don't know what it is. I mean, like it's, it's an, it's a really neat angle, but I think it's also how long it sits Mm -hmm. at that angle that really like sinks home. This is a dead body. We're, we're back again in the Mm -hmm. serious realm. Yeah. It's a tone shift. Yeah. Rockford tells Beth to find a phone and then there's these gunshots and our, our main man, Elliot, um, is taking pot shots at them from the darkness <laughs> and then runs off, jumps into his little white speedster and speeds away to which we get an angry Rockford in hot pursuit. In yes. in his own Firebird, right? Yes. It is unleashed. <laughs> this is a really great kind of little chase that is a counterpoint to the big chase that we had earlier. Now yeah. it's at night, it's in streetcars, it's in an urban or semi-urban, it's kind of suburban environment, and Rockford is the one pursuing. So we have all the elements of the first one kind of flipped. It wasn't too much chasing for me for an episode that had like three separate car sequences. And I think vitally, Elliot's car is oh, so yeah. small. <laughs> Whichever patron is updating the car stuff on the Rockford Files files. And you are doing the the Lord's work, calling out all the production cars in all these episodes because it's amazing. (laughs) 
I'm waiting for that because I don't know what kind of car this is, but like, this is like a tiny 1960s James Bond car, the, the exact opposite of that Mack truck, like you yeah. were saying. Uh, and it's a convertible and there's a vulnerability there. You're sitting behind the wheel of a Mack truck high above your, your mm. prey. You look invulnerable. Then he's in this mm. tiny car with this canvas top and the inevitable happens. This chase is all about Rockford just keeping with him until he makes a mistake. Mm. In this one, we're seeing him confident. Yeah. I just need to keep with him. I know this guy is going to mess up. And he does. He gets he comes around a corner, gets blinded by some oncoming headlights, uh, spins out onto this kind of vertical uh, side of the road and flips mm. his car. And we get a, a last little shot of Elliot kind of falling out of the car. He's all covered in blood. He's really messed up. And we see his watch that got unclipped by the force of the impact fall off of his wrist and be just laying next to his hand as Rockford comes up to check him out. His time is oh. up. <laughs> Rockford returns uh, to the house where Beth has been waiting for him for so long because he had to stay for the police and give a statement. He says that Elliot is in the hospital. He's pretty messed up, uh, but alive. He hasn't said anything like to the cops, but they're going to start putting things together pretty soon. And Rockford wants to get there first with uh, the facts as he sees them kind of falling into place. I do want to say something about this line, because this is, I think, uh, an interesting contrast between Rockford and maybe some other detective heroes. If I figured it out, they're going to be close behind. Mm -hmm. To him, investigation is work and not genius. Mm -hmm. You do the things that you're supposed to do, like the same way you would if you (laughs) were cleaning a bunch of dishes or, you know, building a house. You do the things and you come to the conclusion. Rockford isn't a genius who knows how to make connections better than the police do. He's operating under that assumption. And I I really appreciate that about this character. It's not that Rockford is the world's greatest detective. Uh, It's that he is Rockford. And that's why we watch him. He's able to take advantage of the differential in knowledge, right? That's always his thing. Like, if I know this... That gives me an advantage until someone else knows it. So he, right. he'll milk that right. difference for all it's worth. And in this case, he he milks it in order to get to Elizabeth Gorman's first before the cops uh, decide mm. to go talk right. to her. Elizabeth Gorman lives in a very nice house as well as one might expect from how, how her character has been presented so far. <laughs> Rockford knocks and then does not let her close the door on him as he tells her that Elliot is not just in the hospital, he's in the prison ward of the hospital for the the murder of Clive Russell. He doesn't have anything left to lose, so he's telling the cops everything. Uh, They'll be there soon. This is all to put pressure on Elizabeth, I think, to tell him something, because he's still operating on some kind of, on on clues and supposition. I like how she turns around and is like, I don't believe you. I don't believe anything that you're saying. I don't think he's dead. I don't think Elliot's in the hospital. Nothing. Uh, I don't know what you have to gain by lying to me, but you're lying. And she's not wrong. Yeah. But then Rockford shows her Elliot's watch, which he apparently took (laughs) from the crash (laughs) (laughs) uh, as proof that he was in this accident. And then he he lays out what he thinks happened to put more pressure on her, but also to finally tell us, <laughs> the viewing audience, what the hell has been going on this whole time. Steve Gorman, the author of the book, his body was never found. He was lost in some boating accident off the coast of Mexico. Yeah. 
So he thinks that Calhoun, you know, who didn't exist before two years ago, was Gorman. And once he learned about the film, he came to L.A. to get his cut. So uh, Elizabeth Gorman, who had been courted, I guess, by Clive Russell, uh, they were engaged technically. But she also had a relationship with this guy, Elliot. So Elliot killed Gorman to keep him out of this picture deal to protect their interests. Again, this is a little overwrought. Right, yeah. So we're assuming Steve Gorman faked his death, right? Right. Just to finish that out, she breaks down and says that she she truly thought he was dead. Right. Uh, and it put her through hell that he showed back up after faking his own death and that she just couldn't stand having him be part of it, I guess. I mean, and also now she's engaged and she has this big movie deal and whatever. But there's a little bit of... I guess, motivation that's still a little unclear to me about some of what happened. So the timeline is this Steve Gorman fakes his death, convincing his original wife that he's dead. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then she gets the rights to his book because of this copyright loophole. And that happens while that's being made or that's a before the, the book is being made. It sounds like that must have been before the movie actually happened, but when it was going to happen, it's a little unclear. They use some different language at different points that makes it unclear about when the movie is yeah. actually being made. He then goes on and tries to become a poet. Like we don't see him at all. We get nothing of him. So we don't really know what his motivation is. She says that he would rather fake his own death than just get a divorce. So they apparently were not happy together. But other yeah. than that, we don't really. Yeah. I mean, obviously the motivation for killing him the second time when he shows up again is clear. If he shows up again, then... Then he gets the rights and he gets the movie and... Then she loses everything. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit of a convoluted plot. Not the episode is a convoluted plot, but... This backstory kind of motivation. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Well, and also, I think there's a line in there about how Elliot didn't know about the copyright law, but Clive Russell did. And yeah. so that was the motivation for Elliot killing Russell was so that they wouldn't get married I guess. And so she would still have like, so they could be together, I guess it was a little, that part also didn't telegraph well to me. So this is kind of the exposition that tells us here's why all the things happened. Yeah. I think the emotional reality is strong. Like she is distraught, but also angry. And she clearly has real feelings for Elliot. Yeah. That all makes sense. But the logistics of who did what, why are beside the point at this point in the episode to me. Yeah, I think I feel bad about bringing this up at the very end of our discussion of the episode because I think I really, really enjoyed the episode. I just had a little trouble with the with the motivations of the man who was dead at the very beginning of the episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, because we never get to hear anything from him. It's all filtered through his wife, and she she clearly didn't know yeah his real story. And yeah, we do get this kind of nice dramatic end of the scene where she essentially confesses to at least conspiring to, right. to murder yeah. her former husband uh, while the sirens. Mm. approaching sirens are going. I appreciated getting the, getting all the pieces all put together into one conversation, but also it's not a very compelling set of pieces to me. Yeah. What is much more compelling is the next scene. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and the last of our, of our episode, which is where we get Rockford and Beth back together <laughs> on the pier. Yeah. Going to get tacos. Yes. Woo. So we uh, come back to arguing over expenses as well. 
10 cents a mile, not seven cents a mile. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great because it's, I mean, it's literally nickeling and diming him. But uh, yeah, so we get a couple little final bits and pieces uh, and we'll be okay. She's back in Arizona. She'll get over yeah. it. They uh, kind of haggle over these expenses um, <laughs> as they go up to the taco stand where he orders two tacos. Uh, and then he's like, you know what? Fine. Let's just forget about the expenses. How about just pay me for my time? <laughs> and that's when Beth says that she will as soon as Anne pays her. Did he not understand <laughs> that she meant that she would pay him once she was paid? Exactly. So this is getting back to your thing, Emily, right? About how she very carefully phrased her exactly you know she she accepted she saw that jim was gonna hold the line she in her mind decided how she was going to be agreeing to him and uh and here's the payoff Mm -hmm. right and he's like all right her small amount of land that's going to take her a long time to sell and who knows how much she'll get out of it um (laughs) so how about this how about retain me on this new defense case you have because i recommended you (laughs) To Elizabeth Gorman, <laughs> who apparently is now keeping Beth uh, as her defense attorney. But Beth says that, no, no, she has a brilliant defense and she doesn't need Rockford. Yes. But there's this other hard luck case. This old man <laughs> doesn't have a penny, but he's really nice. He's in a real jam. And Rockford just turns, leaves the tacos on the desk <laughs> and walks away. We end our episode with the uh, freeze frame on Rockford waving jauntily, waving goodbye as he uh, <laughs> walks out of the situation. So classic. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but given the what we've learned about the law in this episode, uh-huh. Anne might be due some money because she's she was married to Steve Gorman when he died. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It might be an illegal. I'm like, I don't know. Like, it might take a while to untangle this. But yeah, if he didn't die, well, no, because then the publisher still has the rights, and then mm. he's actually dead, oh, and he's right. actually married to Anne. Yeah. But that marriage might be illegal because oh. he never got a divorce. Uh, what a tangle <laughs> we weave. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the the dark and bloody ground. I'd like to make sure we hear from our guest here, Emily. What 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 did you think? What did you have jump out at you that we didn't really talk about? Or do you have anything else you wanted to discuss or add about this this episode? My big takeaways from this really were the things we talked about the most. That it did a really great job of having tense action scenes and introducing a character mm-hmm. that would end up being a very important part of Rockford. And something that I love about the Rockford show is that they give a lot of attention to the side characters that come in for the various different cases every episode. I always feel like they're a person, they're a character. Um, but they did a little bit more mm-hmm. with Beth. I presume that it was always planned that she was going to be a regular or a, a semi-regular character. That was that was well done, even if they weren't planning it. Well, apparently it wasn't like they were planning to have this character necessarily be around for four seasons. But once <laughs> they had her in and did this role, they were like, okay, yeah, we should keep going with that. Awesome. Like Because she had such yeah. good chemistry with Garner and took the role so as such a strong performer. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, we need to cast this person for the next four years. <laughs> My understanding from the kind of write-up here is that because she did such a good job, they're like, oh, well, we have to keep going with that. 
That's awesome. That's great to know the background of how she became part of the, the show. One of my favorite characters. Yeah. I mean, there's a great quote here from Gretchen Corbett. So again, from here, I'm saying this is uh, Ed Robertson's mm. book where she says, there was something about the character Beth that I knew. It spoke to me because I'm a reasonably intelligent woman and they didn't write such roles at the time. That is, there weren't as many strong, smart female characters on television as there are today. And back then, women were usually limited to playing the wife or the girlfriend. Mm. I just want to say that Rockford really doesn't fit that mold. In many of the episodes, there's either the person who gives him the case or there's a strong female character that he interacts with who have a wide variety of professions and interests. And, you know, they might be flaky, they might be professional or who knows, but it feels really like this show particularly leaned against that. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Gretchen Corbett responded to that in a good way. Yeah. Now it's a good, a good pairing of, of role and, and performer for sure. Yeah. I think we went over all the uh, things we really liked. Yeah. Again, just the sense of like, here's this great idea. And then I felt like the idea itself wasn't as great as he thought it was. <laughs> I, I do want to say, like, I absolutely appreciate the idea. Like, I love these kind of quirky. Mm. Th- they are, to me, more interesting than if it was like some invented new way to kill someone and you had to figure out. Or, or it is more interesting than like just than just sheer like jilted lover revenge. Right. Yeah. And it does feel very Rockford to be built around this kind of quirk in the law or bureaucracy. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if this would have been better as that like two hour TV movie than as an hour <laughs> Rockford Files episode to kind of tease out that weird mm-hmm. tangle a little bit more. But I might also just be hung up on it. It is a, a super fun episode and it's great to see uh, Beth and Jim get their start. Yeah. Speaking of starting, perhaps we will wrap up this segment of our show uh, before we go to our second half. Emily, is there anything that our listeners should know about you or your work or upcoming projects? Sure. Uh, you can find my games at blackgreengames.com, including the romance trilogy that I mentioned before and a bunch of other games that I've, I've written or worked on. And also, uh, This coming year, I am chair of a a conference happening in May in the Boston area called the Living Games Conference. And it's uh, focused on LARP, but it's going to be an international gathering of people talking about and playing and uh, learning about a wide variety of different styles of play, including LARP. And also we'll pull in related fields like interactive theater, ARGs, uh, tabletop. There's information about that at livinggamesconference.com. I hope some folks might think about coming and joining us. Right on. Excellent. Highly recommended, all of those things. Hopefully you'll also all stick around for our second half where we go into how these relationships and uh, ways of constructing exciting action scenes give us tools to steal for our own work. Yay. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about 
Swords and Sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 a Day. This is the second portion of the show uh, where we talk about the lessons we may have learned in the uh, while watching this particular episode and uh, how to apply those lessons to our own uh, narratives and fictions that we write and design. So we're going to start with our guest here, uh, Emily, Emily Kerboss. Um, what would you like to talk about? What, what are some lessons that you've pulled from this here? One of the most central pieces of this particular episode, partly because it's such an early episode from Rockford, was taking a character who is essential to the plot and then building them into a character that's interesting enough to carry you through, in this case, multiple seasons of a show. So I thought we could maybe talk about how they did that with Beth. And really, one of the things that Rockford always does, in my opinion, is they draw their their supporting or their their temporary characters really strongly. You know, we know immediately who Beth is, both Mm -hmm. from how she acts with Jim and how Becker talks about her. Um, we get a sense of, of the class differences, the experience differences, and also that she's really devoted to helping people who don't have a lot of resources. But the way it plays mm-hmm. out with her is that there's this dynamic where she tries to like pull Jim in and he and she end up having lots of negotiations about how that's going to function. I like how as a character, because if we're kind of treating, you know, treating this as the first time that we see Beth, she's like a certain Venn diagram with different aspects of Rockford's character, right? Yeah. There's certain things that, that kind of apply to both of them. And there's certain ways that they're opposites, may not opposites, but they have conflict over and that's what creates their dynamic relationship. So like they both have empathy for the downtrodden, which is expressed in slightly different ways, I think, but they share that they both have this kind of, super attenuated sense of uh, money and owing people and getting compensated for your work. Uh, But they have the class difference of their backgrounds about money and how much they just have in their lives, it seems. And then they have different kind of opinions about the law and when it's appropriate to (laughs) (laughs) interface with or skirt around or play with the law. Maybe somewhere to start is like kind of that if you have your central character or your protagonists bringing in someone who you intend to be a long running participant in that dynamic, there's stuff that you share and there's also stuff that you need to be able to fight over. Right. Right. She also matches well, sort of in a skills suite, if that makes sense, because uh, earlier you talked about the trifecta of Jim Becker and uh, Beth, and she's the attorney. So she sort of bridges the gap between Jim's skills and, and the, the official police. Uh, she's uh, another really interesting note that fits beautifully into the PI genre. And it's great that she ends up being this person who has her own agenda, her own desires. You know, she wants to help the downtrodden, but in a different way from Jim. Uh, and she's got a history with him, which eventually turns into, uh, again, an active relationship between mm. the two characters. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the history part, I really think is like the crux of the lesson that I could pull away from this. So if we just threw all of the Rockford Files episodes into a hopper and pulled them out at random, 
and we ended up watching this one, I would never have guessed that this was the first Beth episode. Mm-hmm. This episode, the way it plays out is as if she already has the relationship with Rockford that we will then see play out in future episodes. That of itself is fine, but what I think is really neat is how all the things that you were saying before, Emily, about like establishing all these narrative hooks that you're going to hang the uh, the relationship on underneath the assumption that it already exists. It's a neat exercise to just be like, hey, let's just pretend that these characters know each other and not, not go through the process of having to show how all of these things started up, but mm-hmm. just showing how they operate in their day-to-day life with these things happening. Well, then you, then you build on that, right? Whether it's a role-playing game or it's fiction that you're writing, where that that opening place gives you an ability to later on go oh yeah and remember like this is like that time when you um bailed on me at dinner or something like that right or uh had an argument about something that's similar so that you can then layer on top through the character's past so that in the future of the narrative you're able to reach back in and say oh well this element here is ties back into something that never existed in the narrative before, but that we, it has the legitimacy and it has depth for these characters because you're locating it in the past. There's something that I really appreciate with how uh, the Rockford Files does this in particular, because I feel like they use this technique a lot of introducing a character you've never seen before, but referring to the history that they have, usually with Jim, whether it's because they were in jail together or they ran a con together or they had a romantic relationship. But the details or the specifics of those relationships. They're either very vague. Like in this case, it's actually pretty vague. Like we just know that they had something and it kind of implies through the context that some of them were legal and some of them were personal. (laughs) I love the the implication that the personal is extra legal. (laughs) Some of the things they did were legal according to the law. Well, you see, it was an unwritten law. Yeah. (laughs) That's, I think that's good for this, for, but doing it that way for a character that you then are going to have in more and more episodes, I think is probably good because the past can then be this eternal well of new things if you ever need to refer exactly. to something else in their past. Like mm-hmm. you haven't blocked out certain elements or, or pinned down everything. And then sometimes what the show does is there's some very specific reason that Rockford knows the person. Uh, like I'm thinking here of Hotel of Fear, where <laughs> there's the guy in the park, the guy who deals in oh, stolen guns, yes. and yeah. but he hates the pigeons. <laughs> they establish that uh, both with all these weird character details, but also they have a couple lines about the last time that Rockford needed to talk to him about a gun thing. And that's so specific that it's like, well, of course, Rockford needs to have those kinds of people in his life. Yeah. Right. But if that guy came back in every episode, it would become like a kind of one note. Yeah. yeah. But in that one moment that they needed him for the story, using this very defined reason that they had a history together, created an interesting character in that moment. While in this case with Beth, it's like it, they could refer to all kinds of stuff that they've had a history about. And it would all kind of fit as long as it worked in with yeah. their dynamic. Yeah the story we're not telling here, right? Like the story that they don't do for Beth's first story is not the one where Rockford solves the murder of Beth's brother. Mm. What's happening is Beth in the course of her work has come across somebody who can't pay, but needs a PI. And we learn as we watch the very beginning of this episode, that this is not the first time that this has happened. And she gets 
Rockford involved, and it plays out probably how it's played out in previous times. But mm-hmm. what's what's kind of great about that is then it preserves that feeling of continuum, right? It, this isn't the very special Beth episode, and we will actually get a couple very special Beth episodes. We've already done one. A Portrait of Elizabeth. Which is a 200-day favorite. I really appreciate that. Although Beth is like a main character in this episode, this isn't like... a a turning point in Beth's life any more than it's a turning point in Rockford's life. And I think that that's good. It's not overly dramatic or melodramatic. Yeah. It just, she enters as a person with competence and connection and she exits the same way. And then she comes back in. It's a kind of a light touch, right? Where the show is centered on Rockford. So like kind of by definition, most of the plots center on Rockford, Yeah, but that doesn't mean that everyone else in the episode also centers Rockford as their focus. Beth actually is centering her client. Mm-hmm. that's like why she's in this story is because of her client and because of her empathy for Anne. It's not to give Rockford a job or right. to reflect his greatness back at him or something like that. <laughs> Though, I mean, there's a lot of greatness yeah. to reflect. Don't get me wrong, but um, no, no, no. Um, I think that that's a really critical thing. Cause there's a lot of shows. There's a common thread in, in many narratives <laughs> with um, characters like Rockford who solve mysteries or, or your solve uh, situations for people where there's a lot of reflected glory back. And instead, we appreciate and the people in the story obviously appreciate Rockford for his skills, but they're doing it because they need him or because they know mm-hmm. him and they know they can trust him or because they're his friends like Becker and they just can't get him out of the office <laughs> soon enough. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Rockford has to find his way through all of this. It, it, nothing's handed to him and he's not some larger than life glorious person. He's just a guy with some skills. Um, so that just adds like, I don't know, the, the verisimilitude of their relationship, if yeah. you will. Uh, that they still have a dynamic that's not just the work dynamic also, and it's not just the romantic dynamic, and it's it's the combination of all of them. I think that there's some uh, fun, concrete ways that that can be deliberately done, right? Like, if you feel, as you're writing or if you're playing a game and you feel a character becoming as important as, as Beth, the advice I would give is to stop and take a moment and figure out like why you're feeling that way and what you can do to just lay that foundation uh, before you move on so that you can do what they did with this episode, give us a character so so that your neck the next time this character comes up you're not like hey we really like this character so we're just bringing them back we don't remember what it is what we liked about this character or we don't remember what it is about the relationship that, that uh worked out i've got a game example that reminded me uh, that i was reminded of by uh Nathan when you're talking about the Venn diagrams of overlap and difference between uh Beth and Jim in shooting the moon yeah romance the uh, love triangle game the way you make the characters is first you start with the the beloved, which is the person at the center of the triangle that two other people are trying to you know become closer to, and you figure out what's in, what's interesting about them to all the players, and everybody's making these characteristics together, and they're they're derived from what are its characteristics that would be desirable in the setting. So if it's a, a sci-fi fantasy, maybe they're an amazing pilot, um, and then when you make the other characters, you actually spin off aspects of that main character and then give them to the two suitors. Mm -hmm. And then also the players uh, take turns giving aspects that are are actually opposed to the the characteristics that are are like the beloved so that you have differences and overlap 
and weaknesses and strengths that the players can all play on. And that's just, you know, one very specific structural way to do it when you're building a role-playing game character. But that kind of concept of the overlap and the differences, I think, is a really fruitful one in terms of thinking about how you mesh people. I was actually thinking about that very same game. Uh, and I wasn't thinking about it in in terms of the love triangle that's in that game, uh, because I, d- I don't see that present in this story. But the characters having these traits that are related to each other. And I think Nathan was saying stuff about this earlier. And I was thinking about the gun when um, Rockford gets home and Rocky has the gun on him. And Mm -hmm. then we learn just through a little throwaway line of dialogue that it's not registered. It's not, it's not a legal gun. So here's a moment uh, where Jim is absolutely willing to break the law. And then later on, we have the whole scene uh, where Mm. Beth pulls the keys in the car uh, to get Jim to do something illegal that he's not comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. These two traits would be just like a uh, sorry shooting the moon traits, like related shooting the moon traits, where they're both mm. illegal activities or quasi-legal activities that uh, the two characters share, uh, but they're, they're clearly the same kind of trait, but they're not they're not seeing each other as uh, having that same trait. Jim's like, oh, I've got a gun and, and I, you know, it's not registered, but I am definitely going to go and tell the cops this. I'm not going to hold this secret back. They're filtered through the relationship with the person and that kind of highlights and connects them. And there's another kind of trait in shooting the moon that relates to this, where you, Mm -hmm. you give the character a trait and then you modify it. So you say, like, say you were talking about Jim and you say, willing to break the law is his trait. Yeah. <laughs> and then you modify it by saying, but only to a point mm-hmm. or uh, in ways that aren't going to hurt anybody or uh, for a specific altruistic reason or, or to protect himself. You know, like you, you say, this is the thing that I'm willing to do or that's this character has. But then you change it slightly, and that means that in some circumstances, it's going to uh, be okay, like to have the gun. But then if you go beyond it and you're like, wait a minute, I'm going to be crossing the police, (laughs) then you've crossed a line and you you can't go there. Yeah, definitely. Should we talk about the chase? Yeah, let's talk about chase. And we talked about the the chase a lot in the the blow-by-blow one of the things that I, I was just really impressed with about how was how it was constructed in this visual narrative, that it was really mm-hmm. excitingly presented. You know, there's the the visual contrast of the small car and the big truck. Um, there's so many close-ups of their faces. And also uh, just the, the way that it's shot, you're getting the feel of the speed and the, um, the pressure of the two cars against one another. And it's, there's no special effects here. That's another nice thing about it. It's just cars on the road. The, another chase that it reminded me of was the Casino Royale chase with a Daniel Craig version of mm. that James Bond movie. In the very beginning of the film, there's a parkour chase where they're going up a construction site. And the, mm-hmm. the, the stakes are low. You know, they're not like jumping from a, a plane in the middle of the sky or skiing down a mountain. But there's this constant sense of frailty of uh, Daniel Craig's body because he can't do the, the crazy things that the other guy can do. And so it's just a matter of what he's willing to do. Um, and in this chase, mm-hmm. Rockford, what Effie talked about earlier was the you're seeing the gas gauge and you're, you're, you have a sense of what the economy of what the resources are. And I guess Mad Max Fury Road did that really well too, where you have a really good sense of what on these trucks 
the people have ability to affect in order to get just a little bit farther ahead of the people that are chasing them. Yeah. And it all matters and it all yeah. like builds the tension in a really visceral kind of way. For the sake of discussion, all of those use the visual of watching it on mm-hmm. a screen to create a lot of that tension and to communicate all that information. So if you're working in a medium that's that's verbal primarily or the written word, how do we translate some of those concepts? You know, because like the camera does so much yeah. work in this in this scene um, to establish how much danger Rockford is in. How do you create that kind of thrilling sense of danger uh, without having the camera? There's a, a a neat trick that I think that they were using in the first tra- chase where it's a long one and chases we think of as as things where you get your heart rate up and this is going to be like an exciting thing and when they're when they don't hit well they can go on too long and you could just be like yeah we get it you're trying mm-hmm. to get away uh, but w- why this one worked I think is that at every given moment instead of uh, escaping the truck we had something right in front of us that needed to. Get Get dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the moment where the truck is coming up behind them, and in the very beginning, where we don't really know what the truck is up to, or, or at least Rockford doesn't know that the truck is even up to anything until it puts the pressure on. Uh, but then we get going uphill, and maybe you're losing some speed, or you go around and you have to go off road, and you lose your traction and you can't, can't go forward anymore. And we have the tension between if you can get out of there before the truck does, or you get stuck behind a sedan. <laughs> this is a chase, but it's actually a sequence of uh, physical challenges. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's like a sequence of small obstacles. Yeah. And the obstacles aren't just jump over this or something like that. They're, they're like, here's a tiny chase puzzle to solve. Here's mm. your situation here. What are you going to do about it? You don't have to be a genius to solve them. You don't have to like, ha ha, I'll do this or whatever. <laughs> what what you're doing is you're just bringing the stakes close to the mm. moment rather than this kind of far away thing. And so if you're writing it, I think you can kind of present that. Although I think if I were writing it, I would want to have something else going on somewhere else to yeah. cut to in between the, the these different digestible sizes of chase. Or I would just list all the things and just get it done in one sentence, one breathless chase. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of different angles to take on that. Looking at a, a, an example of a story that uses um, character interactions to put the, the pressure in, it's a nice break. Because if you have, like in Mad Max Fury Road, the characters within the cab actually fighting over how many guns and bullets they have, or who's going to risk themselves and put their life on the line in order to give them just that needed break and distraction so that they can get away it, it means that you're thinking about the tension of the mechanical objects, and then also you're having this narrative relief of having characters that you care about taking personal actions. Um, and I think that that will vary up the narrative mm-hmm. enough so that you don't just feel like, okay, it's another procedural step. It's another procedural step. I think it's notable that we talked about it, this sequence as one that we liked, even though it was long and narrativeless, because normally you would get bored by that. So it's a testament to how well mm-hmm. they did with the visual elements of this chase that they were able to, to bring us along. And I, I thought of a couple of games that do these things in different, not necessarily about chases. Ah, good. Uh, one of which is um, Worldwide Wrestling, actually. Ah. Well, I think about wrestling, right? It's like the most boring thing in the world if it's just 
somebody hits somebody, they're doing the, sort of the same movements that everybody does. <laughs> what matters is how they do it, when they do it in surprise, or when mm-hmm. they can telegraph that they're going to do it so they get the crowd all whipped up. And what you do in World War Wrestling is using the commentator and the mechanics that you have to make that interesting. So there's something in wrestling that I think does apply to this particular way of looking at a chase, which is you, you create an expectation and then you either fulfill it or you deny yeah. it, yeah. right? And that's what creates the rise and fall of tension during a match. In this chase, it was kind of similar where we see Rockford mashing the pedal and we see this, his speed not going up and that creates an expectation, right? right? He's going to get overtaken by this car or by this truck. But then they hit an incline and he manages to, to get just far enough away and he's in a lighter car. So that expectation is then denied. We don't get to yeah. see the truck catch up to him. But then he comes around the bend and we <laughs> see this other car that's in the way. There's going to be another car that's going to create a way for for him to get out of the at least i thought like oh now he can get out of this by just following this car because this other guy <laughs> doesn't want to kill him when there's a witness right yeah like that yeah. happens in lots of things but no then that's denied by they both honk and swerve to get around the slower <laughs> car so they can continue the chase they pass that car on both sides right like yeah the, the most mm-hmm. obnoxious way to pass a car <laughs> yeah and terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of rhythm of like set up something and then see which way it goes, set up something and then fulfill it, set up something and then deny it. That creates the the ebb and flow within yeah. the scene. And I think in this one, if you were maybe writing it, what you could actually do is have Rockford, have Elliot, you know, have some point of view stuff from, from Elliot driving the cab because you see him get frustrated you see him try to outwit Mm -hmm. what rockford is doing yeah even though he's in a larger less nimble vehicle and then what about whoever's in that third car that has no (laughs) idea what's going on and these these crazies just swoop up on them that's actually a really tension-filled moment for that person and we didn't need that (laughs) Mm -hmm. point of view on screen obviously right but if you're writing it or playing it out at the table and you're cutting back and forth between the two people in the chase and the one person who doesn't know that they're in the chase yet. I feel like that <laughs> could be a, a way to uh, to add a little more dynamic kind of back and forth to the flow of the narrative. What I would love there is for that person to then, after all the chase and everything, pull into that gas station. Yeah. <laughs> just want to tell the attendant about it. And the attendant is just like, I cannot deal with another one of you today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it occurred to me that um, the other technique you use in Worldwide Wrestling to tighten it up is the commentator, which, of course, comes straight from wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about races that people watch, uh, they're full of commentation. Oh, sure, and that's yeah. the way that you, you layer on narrative and tension by giving someone, mm. having somebody who's informed give voice to what's happening. So people aren't just squinting at the track, but they know this person's ahead or, you know, this person's coming up or, or this horse is, is in the lead. Or even sports commentary, like football in particular, not that I watch a ton of football, but like the pace of it compared to the commentary, like the commentary is carrying a lot of the weight of keeping people interested in what's happening because the actual action is so, is in such tight bounds. 
you have someone bringing up all the stuff about the players and their pasts and their schools mm. and ephemera about them that isn't actually about the game that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of games, uh, like if you're running a game and there is a chase, if there's a, a single GM in this game, mm-hmm. a lot of the time they take on that job that's of true. calling the action, yeah. right? Um, you do mechanical things and they kind of translate that into the narrative. So if you want to steal that technique, you know, you just make someone else have that job and they can be in charge of putting together the, the, uh, the pieces to create that flowing narrative while everyone else is concerned with mechanical things or pithy one-liners or (laughs) whatever the other things are in your game. Yeah. I I think we've talked about this every time we've talked about a car chase in Rockford, but the situational awareness and having things around the chase that Rockford takes advantage of is also very strong in this. Terrain matters. Yeah. It's a, it's a fairly featureless area, but it's very much the terrain where there's dirt versus pavement, where it falls off into a cliff versus where the road is. Uh, And then he gets away by finding that bridge yeah. He takes his smaller size as an advantage uh, to get away. So the other game I wanted to call out is um, Yusaki Ojimbo uh, adaptation done by um, uh, Sanguine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It has a really good way of modeling the, the mood dimensions and the interactions between actors in a fight. And just what feels so good about that is that it, you really care about whether somebody's scared or whether they can take the next action and the choices that you've made about mm. how your character interacts with a, um, a military or, or fight situation uh, can change the way the action plays out. So um, in terms of thinking about chases, uh, you know, it mattered that it was a Mack truck. Rocky was right. It mattered that it was <laughs> a Mack truck or, a, or a, <laughs> you know, or the tiny little car at the, in the final chase. It made a difference to us watching. And uh, but but there's textual information there, and it, it feels different depending on what they're chasing in and what the relationship is. And also, like in one, Jim's the chaser, and one he's the chasee. It's a totally different dynamic mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, we see we see Elliot being the like grim faced, like I'm going to kill this guy to protect my like interests, and then his panicked, oh my god, how am I going to get out of this one? And it's also really great that that's on the tail end of him taking some pot shots at Rockford. Like, right. so he has a gun. Yeah. He just got done <sighs> killing someone with that gun. What has changed this status was just Rockford's willingness to yeah. run after him. And uh, when he does that, it changes everything. And that is a great beat in a story. Like I, uh, the thing I'm calls to my mind is that scene in uh, tombstone. Uh, if you've seen that movie where uh, mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp, it, you know, they're, they're pinned down and then he just stands up and just starts walking out with a gun, just shouting. No, it, it's just a great moment where you just having somebody behave in a way that yeah. the other character didn't expect change the that character's situation and dynamic so swiftly Mm -hmm. it's good stuff and i think that brings us to maybe the last big thing we want to talk about which was how this episode does a good job with tonal shifts because that's a story beat that's also a tonal shift from let's find out more about what's going on to let's chase this guy down and the threat of danger to us yeah it happened a couple of times with um beth and jim bickering and then going into a, a, a situation of extreme danger, which kind of like cuts through all the bull- 
immediate preceding the car chase where, or rather not the car chase, but the, the, where they're driving in his car and the um, brakes have been tampered with. And then the final sequence where they're going uh, to where they end up seeing this dead body. And it's a technique that, that it, it's really helpful in a lot of ways, because if you just have one tone for a, a work, it gets really heavy or it gets too light. It's, it's, it's just like having multiple tastes in a meal. You want to have multiple t- feels in a film. And uh, mm-hmm. also having com- comedy uh, immediately preceding uh, darkness or, or danger, it, it enhances the surprise for the viewer or the reader because they are just going along just like the characters. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, this thing happens. It means you're, you're not guarded. You're open to whatever might happen. So it might enhance the, the fear or whatever the suspenseful reaction mm-hmm. is. And then, of course, maybe think of uh, Swords Without Master. Yeah. Which with the tone dice, mm-hmm. it makes that a central element of having the narrative shift. And it's like, now how I see it is it's a springboard, you know, because you're improvising this narrative in the game, but you're having the tonal shifts help inform what's going to happen. And then you even in the game, and we can, I'm sure we could see this play out in, in, the, um, in the, the show, you have contrast between one character who is in one tone mm-hmm. and the rest of the scene that's in another. One thing uh, with the tones that is also kind of good is that you use the tonal shift as as a punctuation. So you want it to happen when you want a shift in the story as well, right? Like you're not jumping back and forth in the same scene here, right? Like d- during none of these chase sequences that we just spent a lot of time talking about. There's no like a gag in the middle of the chase sequence. But we have this really dramatic opening to this whole story where the the um, rescue vehicles are showing up at a fire and the you know the body's taken out and the woman is crying out and she's crying out no and that just cuts to Jim saying no I'm not going to take this case which is <laughs> is a joke but it doesn't ruin what just happened it just resets us for for the discussion we're about to have this is the next step in the story you don't have to shift the tone every time you you go to the next step when you do you're making a big statement yeah you you're you're saying yeah chapter 2 something different is happening now in in that transition specifically it's very much the telling the audience like yeah. you're going to get a little bit of both of these yeah it feels weird when it's serious for the first two thirds and then there's a comedic yeah. ending. Yeah. Like that is kind of a weird shift or it's a comedic episode. We've had it. We've done a couple episodes where it's been relatively comedic. And then the very last scene yeah. is a big yeah. down note. Even if it's like a satisfying end of the story, it does feel like a strange tone shift yeah. when it's the only one or it, it's counterweighting the entire rest of the episode. So in this case, I think it's not just that the that the tone shifts, it's that the frequency mm. and pace of those shifts is good. Like it's it, it has a nice rhythm to it. You get the serious, then you go into some comedic stuff, so you know you're going to get both. But then each scene kind of knows what it is and saves the shift, like you were both saying, either as the punctuation at the end or as the springboard for, you know, for the next one that's going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well... I think we've explored most of the uh, strongest things from this episode. Uh, is there anything else anyone wants to make mention of before we wrap up our, our first guest appearance here on 200 a day? Uh, I would like to thank our first guest for joining us on mm. 200 a day. Thank you, Emily. Uh, and I'd also like to thank our patrons for making it possible for us to have our guests. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Uh, it's such a pleasure to watch Rockford Files. Uh, it was really neat to get to delve into it more deeply with you and to 
share my thoughts about that and other games and fiction and stuff. Well, yeah, thanks so much for for joining us. Um, is excellent to talk to you, of course, and also to get your thoughts on the episode. It's super fun. Again, uh, if you're interested in anything that Emily has mentioned, check out her work at blackgreengames.com and the Living Games Conference, which uh, is coming up in, you said, March? Uh, May 2018 in the Boston area. So interested in interact in, in doing the interactive version of any of this stuff, uh, then you're going to want to check that out. I think that, well, this time we're going to have to split our 200 a day three ways, but I think that's okay. Oh, that's tough. Oh, that's really tough. We're going to have a, a penny left over. Hey, hey, what about if um, if the case comes out all right? <laughs> then you can pay me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, hopefully the case will come out all right. And uh, either way, we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.